Hey everyone, my name is Ari Saperstein, and I'm the host of Blind Landing. If you haven't heard the show before, Blind Landing is a documentary podcast. And each season, we do a deep dive into the culture of a different sport. Last year, we released the first season of Blind Landing, which went behind the scenes in the world of elite gymnastics. And now, for our second season, we've got a handful of new stories all about the world of figure skating. We're going to be getting up close and personal with some of the biggest names in figure skating, like Adam Rippon and Christy Yamaguchi, along with some skaters that you might not know about, but should, like Mia Kalin and Mabel Fairbanks. And the stories this season, they're all about identity in all shapes and forms. And today's episode is the first of a three-part story. Now, I started off the first season of Blind Landing by explaining that I'm a journalist, not a gymnast. And I think it's worth saying right now that I am also not a figure skater. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you a Lutz from an Axel. Until recently, I thought it was Sao Cow, not Sal Cow, that the jump was an allusion to cows somehow. I, I'm so, so not a figure skating expert. But... When I was a kid, there was something about figure skating that left a really big impact on me. Um, See, I associate figure skating with the very first time that I remember hearing about gay people. Long before I knew I was gay, and before I really knew what being gay even meant. And that's because I saw and heard this widespread stereotype about men in figure skating being queer. A stereotype that was just everywhere when I was growing up. Like, like I just remember seeing so many TV shows and movies when I was younger where it was a joke or a punchline. Like, in Friends. You know, I'm an ice dancer. All my friends are gay. I was just trying to fit in. You know? And Sex in the City. He's a bisexual. Well, I could have told you that, sweetie. He took you ice skating, for God's sake. And The Simpsons. Don't you hags know that all male figure skaters are twinkly in the Lutz? I mean, there's Blades of Glory, an entire movie essentially predicated on this stereotype. So I've always thought that the world of figure skating is a space that was A, full of queer people, especially queer men, and B, where queer people were out and about in every sense. Until I talked to my friend, Chris. Oh, Ari. My sweet, young, innocent, naive Ari. Okay, so I am sitting here with Chris Schleicher, the resident figure skater in my life. And Chris, it was about what, four or five months ago, I think you and I were talking on the phone when I told you about my perception of figure skating. And you basically mm, laughed in my face. Yeah? Oh, no, I think that sounds way too mean. It was more like a condescending chuckle, right? (laughs) That sounds about right. In all fairness, of course you're not alone in that presumption of skating being a queer haven. I've heard that from so, so many people in my life. And I can't help but laugh because it's just so different from my lived experience. I'm a former figure skater... I used to compete as a pair team with my younger sister on the national level. From age 5 to 21, figure skating was my life. And that gay stereotype? Like you, I was also aware of it. Very aware of it. 
from a young age because kids on the playground were throwing it in my face all the time. Everyone was telling me that I was gay before I had any awareness of my sexuality. You'd think, inside the sport, that it would be safer than the playground. You'd think I could twirl around to my heart's content. But in fact, on the ice, I was constantly told I was doing the gay sport too gay. Judges told me that my style was too soft and artistic, and I needed to look stronger to be the boy in a pair team. A coach once slapped my limp wrist and directly told me, don't do that, it looks gay. I learned quick that the skating world was well aware of the gay stereotype and was not into it. How, how common was that attitude? Like, like, to what degree do you think that was just, you know, your experience in the sport? Every male skater I know, no matter their sexuality, was asked to conform to a very narrow idea of how a man should appear on the ice. And for me, living through that pressure left me with a really complicated relationship to my masculinity and sexuality, to what I was allowed to be. I was participating in one of the most stereotypically gay sports on the planet, and I didn't come out until a couple months after I retired. My brain just did not feel like it was an option for me while I was still inside the sport. You know, Chris, hearing you describe this is just so different than my perception. Because, you know, watching the Olympics over the years, I guess I just have always assumed that a lot of the male skaters I was seeing were queer and publicly out. The reality is the U.S. didn't send an out figure skater to the Olympics until 2018 when Adam Rippon was named to the team. Adam Rippon breaking barriers. Figure skater Adam Rippon, the first openly gay U.S. athlete to qualify for the Winter Games. Never before has the United States sent an openly gay athlete to compete on the Winter Olympic stage. That seems impossible. Yeah, you know, when I tell people this fact, that is always the reaction. Like, there must have been someone else, or it's figure skating for crying out loud. And I get it. Yeah, it is completely unbelievable to me that I was the first. Even Adam Rippon, he gets why people are surprised. I mean, all the time, I don't believe it. It feels unbelievable. And it was just something I'm like, this can't be true in 2018. And part of the reason it's surprising is because there's a truth to figure skating's gay stereotype. For decades, there have been gay skaters at the Olympics, gay Olympic champions even but none were out before Adam. To understand why there haven't been more out skaters, why it took so long for there to be an openly queer skater at the Olympics, you have to understand what happens behind the scenes. That in a sport where the male skaters are presumed to be gay, there's been a culture of fear, a culture where queer skaters have been told that being themselves is not okay. I was just always, always, always trying to like appease and appeal to these people who like were in charge of my destiny. And I did all of the right things. I did everything everyone asked me to do. And it just still like would fall short. Over the next three episodes, we'll be hearing from some of the top skaters in the world. Skaters from across generations and try to get to the bottom of this great contradiction that the so-called world's gayest sport has had a problem with gay people. And this story, it's a story that goes beyond just the experiences of gay men, but of all queer skaters, of all marginalized skaters in the sport. 
a history of intense pressure to conform, and the bravery of skaters willing to put everything on the line for something greater than gold. I knew what the path was going to look like, and it was terrifying. I didn't really see myself and what I wanted to be in another skater. I wasn't going to like get up on my Olympic press conference and be like, oh, and by the way, I'm gay. I'm sorry, I don't need to see a prima ballerina on the ice. I've really tried to find authenticity, and part of that was speaking publicly about my gender and my sexuality. Being the best you can be, well, that's when you really feel the most satisfied. I'm Ari Saperstein. And I'm Chris Schleicher. And this is Blind Landing. Out on the Ice, part one. To understand where the gay stereotype with figure skating comes from, if there's any truth to it, and what it's really like for queer skaters in the sport, we have to go back, way back, to the origins of figure skating in the 1800s. Now, Ari, I'm going to show you some photos of skaters from the 1800s, and maybe you can describe them. Okay, I'm looking at the pictures, and it is... <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so literally, it's like men in three-piece tuxedos and top hats? Yes, the uh, fashion inspiration is very much Mr. Peanut. These look like guys who know how to do a figure eight without spilling one drop of their martini. And is there anything else that stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, looking at these photos, it looks like it's mostly men on the ice. Actually, it's not just mostly men. It's only men. So the early days of skating, skating was done pretty much exclusively by men. These were white, wealthy, aristocratic men in Europe and then in North America. This is Mary Louise Adams, a sociologist who wrote a book on the history of gender and sexuality in figure skating. They weren't trying to be artistic. So it was this kind of upper-class, stiff, masculine team sport and they were wearing very constraining and constricting clothing. Okay, so this thing that we think of today as a, quote, girl sport actually started the opposite, as a men's only sport. <laughs> wow. And even back then, people were arguing over whether the men looked masculine enough on the ice. The English people were skating to confirm your masculine identity, to become stronger. And they actually looked down on the European skaters who were waving their arms around trying to make an artistic impression. Here we see the roots of an idea that's still pervasive today. The idea that being too expressive or artistic is a sign of femininity. And the British people would kind of slag off the Europeans for doing this fey thing. And then the Europeans, they look at the British people and like, why wouldn't you want to be artistic? Like, why would you not want to use this incredible possibility to express yourself? So we can see this conflict about how a man should skate since the beginning of the sport, with some men wanting to express themselves and other people worried they'll seem too effeminate. And this debate plays out again and again throughout the history of skating, especially once it has that label of being a girl's sport. Okay, and how exactly did figure skating get that label, though? Like, when does it go from this men's-only sport to one that not only has women, but where women are the face of it? So women start skating in the early 1900s, and the image of figure skating changes really because of one woman. Winter Olympics, Switzerland, February 1936. 
Sonia Henney, queen of figure skaters for 10 years, wins her third consecutive Olympic championship. Sonia Heaney of Norway, who won, has been queen of the ice for many years. Lovely to look at was Sonia Heaney. She cut superb figures on ice. She's an icon. She's a legend. And she is the moment. Now, come on now. It's Sonia Henney. Okay, Chris, I can tell by your tone that this is someone I should know, but I'm embarrassed to say I have no idea who this person is. Oh my God, Art, you're so lucky you have me here. Um, Okay, Sonia Henney is like, uh, okay, what would you compare her to? Well, the best analogy I can think of is she's like the 1930s version of The Rock. As in Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Correct. Okay, I cannot wait to hear this. Please continue. By the mid-1930s, Sonia Henney is hands down the best figure skater in the world, having won the Olympic title three times and like The Rock, finds herself at the peak of her athletic accomplishments. And it's at this moment that Sonia, like The Rock, makes the transition from athlete to movie star. Sonia Heaney, world champion skater, whose youthful charm and acting ability have brought her into the front rank of Hollywood's world stars. Broadway and Hollywood beckon, and Sonia's silver skates turn to gold. Sonia Heaney goes to Hollywood But then the skating that she presents in those films, that then becomes what people think figure skating is. And it's kind of, it's show skating, right? Like she's wearing sparkly costumes. She created this very sparkly version of femininity. So she's then, as people are becoming exposed to skating for the first time, that's what they're becoming exposed to. Figure skating wasn't mainstream yet. It was still kind of a niche thing. There weren't TVs, so very few people had seen the Olympics unless they went to the games themselves. So watching Sonia Henney on the big screen, for a lot of people, it was their first time seeing figure skating. This is kind of like America's introduction to the sport. And what happens is people who never skated before start skating because of this glitzy image of Sonia Henney in sequin dresses with cap sleeves, these bedazzled showgirl costumes, and she's doing all this choreography and it's set to music. And life imitates art. The sport does away with this stuffy, expressionless style from the 1800s and gets remade in Sonia Henney's image. Leading designers have just been showing what you must wear on ice. Skating time is naturally fashion time. And the other effect of Sonia Henney is this gender reversal of skating. Tons and tons of young girls start skating, while at the same time, a lot of men stop skating. And that's how skating gets the girls' sport label. And basically... Once figure skating got the feminine label of being a, quote, girls' sport, there was no going back. The image of the sport, like like no amazing male athlete ever was really capable of changing the reputation of the sport. Once perceptions changed and it was, it was more considered to be a sport that was more suitable for girls. And not long after, the girls' sport label evolves into a gay sport label. That's after the break. Before the break, we heard about how, in just a few short decades, figure skating went from a men's-only sport to one not just filled with women, but feminized by the influence of Sonia Henney. And soon after, that's when the stereotype about men in figure skating being gay starts. So why is that exactly? Well, we usually see this play out the opposite way, right? Think about the stereotypes about women who play basketball or do weightlifting. 
Women participating in sports are often presumed to be queer because they're seen as doing something masculine. But figure skating, because it's dominated by women and has feminine-coded aspects like choreography and costumes, figure skating is this totally rare instance where it's the men that get presumed to be gay because of their participation in a sport. And we should probably note here that, of course, there's gendered expectations that are oppressive for skaters of all gender expressions and sexualities. And we'll be hearing from queer women and trans and non-binary skaters later on in the story. But for right now, we're going to focus on unpacking the stereotype about gay men in the sport, the reasons for it, and the consequences of it. So when figure skating gets the girl sport label starting in the 1940s, it drives a lot of men away from the sport. But for a certain type of young boy, skating like Sonia Henney is the dream. For someone like, say, Tab Hunter, who is one of the earliest gay skaters we know about. Okay, a lot of people our age probably don't know who Tab Hunter is, but I do because I'm a movie buff. So I just want to give some context here. He was a 1950s movie star and like one of the teen heartthrobs of his generation. And before Tab Hunter became Tab Hunter the movie star, he was a competitive skater. And in his autobiography, he says that Sonia Henney inspired him to get into the sport, writing, quote, when I was little, I had kept a framed photograph of Sonia Henny beside my bed, and every night I'd finish my prayers with, and God bless Sonia Henny, and kiss her picture. I'm inferring that he's kissing the photo in more of a queer man idolizing Cher, Liza, or Judy kind of way than like a romantic way. Uh, yeah, 100% the former. And Tab, he's just one of a number of gay skaters from this time. There's Robin Greiner and Rodney Robertson, both competed at the 1956 Olympics and a number of skaters in the 60s and 70s. The 72, 76, and 80 Olympic champions, all of them were queer. But of course, none of these men were publicly out at the time. Okay, so it sounds like there's long been some truth to the stereotype of gay men in figure skating. Definitely some truth. I kind of feel like there's at least one of us in every rink, but that's just my intuition. There's never been a mass survey of the sexuality of elite figure skaters, despite me constantly petitioning Congress for that funding. I'd say the general consensus is that most skaters are straight, but there's always been a good number of gay men in skating. I mean, it makes sense to me, because historically, queer people have long been drawn to creative and artistic spaces. And while not all queer men are effeminate, and not all straight men are traditionally masculine, many of the men who lean into the effeminate side of skating also happen to be gay. And in the 70s, this was true of the two biggest names in men's skating, two men that were pushing the sport to new artistic heights, Taller Cranston and John Curry. Taller Cranston, his skating was very theatrical. What I think that I brought was a certain spontaneity and a certain flaunting in the face of inhibition. And then John Curry's thing was more about trying to represent ballet on the ice. I was trying to do something different, something that hadn't been done with skating before, and which was drawing from the world of theater and dance. And they really challenged the norms of what was considered acceptable in the sport. And throughout their careers, Tyler Cranston and John Curry both get critiques for their effeminacy, with people behind the scenes telling them to tone it down, being told that judges wouldn't give them good scores because they're queer. And it's not just judges but also coaches and other skaters and officials, a collective of people let's call the skating establishment. So does that pushback kind of like end up limiting how far they're able to go in the sport? Amazingly enough, in spite of the pushback they get, 
they both medal at the 1976 Olympics because, well, they're the best on both an artistic and technical level. John Curry in particular, he has this crowd absolutely roaring every time he lands another jump. And John Curry gets near-perfect scores from the judges for artistic presentation. And what happens is that at those 1976 games, John Curry, the Olympic champion, the day after winning the gold medal, gets outed by the press. I, at the time, thought if I said to a journalist, this is off the record, that it meant that they wouldn't say anything about it. Well, of course, that was not the case. It upset you, clearly. A lot of people said that I, quote, came out at the Olympic. <laughs> but I didn't. You know, I never made intentionally set out to make a statement. But um, then having done it, I'm not going to turn around and say um, uh, that, A, it's not true, or B, that I'm, I think it's wrong, or I'm ashamed of it, or anything else, I, I, which are not, not the case. Wow. So in 1976, there's an out Olympic champion. Well, an outed Olympic champion. And Curry's skating career, it really ends there. After that season, he retired, and people pretended like his outing didn't happen. The story gets kind of buried. It's almost like there's a silent pact to not talk about it and move on. From the press, from the skating establishment, and even from Curry. So the Olympic figure skating champion is out, or outed, but that doesn't really do anything to kind of change the culture. As far as other skaters coming out, no. After all, this is the 1970s. Even if skaters like Curry are winning with a queer, effeminate style on the ice, there's still a whole world of homophobia to contend with. And that, that was the world that Randy Gardner was growing up in. The generation before me, uh, the men had to really be in the closet. It was Ill- illegal activity. I-, I don't know what they did then. I don't know how they handled it. You know, God bless them. Randy Gardner was just starting his career while both Cranston and Curry were at their peaks. When Randy was growing up in the 1970s, he remembers people making presumptions about his sexuality long before he had any awareness of it. When I was... Younger, I was, you know, teased, you know, figure mm-hmm. faggot and all that kind of stuff. And then I kind of maybe got better just because of that. Maybe did it in spite, you know, like I'll show them type of thing. And even though kids taunted Randy for skating, for doing this gay sport, he soon found huge success as a pairs team with his skating partner, Ty Babylonia. All right, Chris, pairs figure skating. This is your area of expertise, right? Yeah. um, So just a sidebar here. I skated with my sister for a number of years. And okay, the the thing about pairs is that because it's a co-ed sport between a man and a woman, there's often this pressure to look like your romantic partners. Oh, my God, Chris. That must have been so uncomfortable for you and your sister. Yeah, well, thankfully, people didn't push it on us because of the whole being related by blood thing. So as siblings, instead of Romeo and Juliet, the storyline in our programs was usually something more like, hey, isn't it fun to dance? But we were the exception to this longstanding expectation. They tried to make us a couple all the time. 
I think by nature mm-hmm. of, of a pair team, there's that sort of built in. So people thought we maybe were boyfriend, girlfriend, or married later on. I ignored it because I had to kind of go with it. So it didn't, didn't affect me that much personally because I knew it was sort of the way it was part of the game. That game, Pressure to Perform Hetero Romance on the Ice, was one that Randy was being asked to play right as he started to become aware of his queerness off the ice. I compartmentalized a lot of stuff, and it wasn't a great thing, but I had to do it. Definitely was in the closet as a boy. I knew I was different. And then now this is in the 70s, so it was really different. And, you know, I was very focused. Um, I, I, I was great at putting myself in denial. Mm-hmm. And that, that, but it got me through a lot of stuff. Um, it's not the healthiest thing to do, and it's not recommended, but it's what I had to do. And the skating training and all that stuff, all that, that was number one. So through his teens, Randy puts part of himself to the side, and with his skating partner, Ty, they just dominate. Five-time U.S. champions, and they win the 1979 World Championships. The U.S. and World Champions, Ty Babylonia and Randy Gardner. And right in the midst of that career success, all those career firsts, Randy achieves another first. My very first boyfriend was Robin Cousins. Robin Cousins, the top male figure skater in the world at that time. And we had to keep it a, keep it a secret because being gay on the, like the Olympic stage and the world stage and elite athlete, you had to be careful. But I had to sort of lie and not be truthful about all that. And then word kind of got out and John Nix, our coach, took me and my dad in and said, so we have to like put a squelch on this, uh, these rumors or, you know, people talking. So we had to be on the down low, Robin and I. And we have to sneak off to be together. That is so wild. These two skating superstars together, but they have to keep it a secret. Not only that, but when Randy talks about sneaking off on the Olympic stage, he means like literally at the 1980 Games. In in Lake Placid at the Olympics, we had to go, we found like empty trailers so we could go hang out and do our thing. In the Olympic Village. It was crazy. It was our own little um, capsule that we created. It was love. It was that, you know, embracing that feeling. Having a partner. We were sort of in our own little world, which felt really good. After the 1980 Olympics, Randy retires, and then he starts touring in ice shows to earn a living. And that's when a whole new world opens up to him. When we turned pro in 1980 and did ice capades and did all that, I was, I was 22. It was, it was a nice turning point because people in the show were gay. It was, it was being back there, backstage, you know, your world is backstage. On the tour bus or the planes or at the hotels, and you're with this big family. And everybody was accepting. And so I was like, oh, my God, this is great. You know, there were people like me and, you know, it all felt good. And nobody cared. But it was this sort of family that embraced all that. And it was, it was like, our, like little, our own little circus world. 
and nobody could get in. But of course, it's just a little bit of freedom, and only in this little bubble. When he has to re-enter the outside world, it's still pretty tough for a gay guy like Randy. And that was 1980, and still, uh, there was not any time to really come out. I didn't want to. It was still a little scary. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uncomfortable being out in public. And that's why being in the show for those first three years, I could go back to that world where I could just fit in. And that push-pull, having one foot in the world with his chosen family, one foot in the world with everyone else, it made it impossible for Randy to merge his private and public self for a really, really long time. My, my parents were alive then, and they weren't against it. But to come out publicly is a whole different thing. And I didn't really publicly come out till I was 50, publicly, publicly. For Randy's generation, even if there was some private acceptance or mild public acceptance, by and large, queer people couldn't be out and proud. And a lot of people are in the closet for a lot of reasons, whether it's religion, parents, society, career, coming out. Uh, this is not an easy thing to do. Hearing Randy's fears, I mean, I get it. Like, we are talking about an era when homosexuality was categorized as a mental disorder, when public figures like Jerry Falwell and Anita Bryant were campaigning against gay rights, when it was a crime for men to have sex with men. And if all that wasn't difficult enough, it's also around this time that a new fear enters the public consciousness. It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Once thought to affect only promiscuous homosexual males, AIDS is now spreading in epidemic proportions to other segments of the population. The trends continue as they are. It was a, it was a very, very dark time, and it was scary. I was in my 20s, and I was losing all these friends. For the first 20 years of what was called the AIDS crisis, men who have sex with men make up about half of all HIV infections. And because there are a lot of gay men in the world of skating, it's not long before the epidemic impacts the sport. Uh, this is in the 80s, in 83, 87, 88, into the 90s. Uh, every day you got a phone call, someone was sick. And in those days, they didn't last that long. You know, what? you got the call, it's like, better go see them like today, because you, know, you might not be able to. So, um, Ty and I used to keep a list, and then we stopped because it got too much. I'm still burnt from that whole thing because there are so many people that we lost that could be doing so much good for everybody now. Even though AIDS is tearing through the skating community, no one's really talking about it. Through the 80s and early 90s, U.S. figure skating doesn't say anything avoids publicly commenting on AIDS. And then in 1992, there's this big expose that comes out, detailing the deaths of dozens of skaters and coaches from HIV-related illnesses. And in this sad way, the AIDS crisis is what, for the first time, confirms just how many gay men are a part of the world of figure skating. And a lot of these guys are outed posthumously because of their cause of death. And one of the first skaters to talk openly about AIDS was someone we heard from earlier. Olympic champion John Curry. Yeah, so I was looking through some newspaper archives and I found the last interview that John Curry gave before passing away in 1994. And in it, he is just 
brutally honest about how scared he was around disclosing his HIV status. He said, I thought people would snarl at me and say, keep away from me, you leper. I was afraid that people would throw bricks through the window. I think the more open people are, the easier it gets for everyone else because it demystifies it. I don't want others to be frightened like I was. There were also legal and financial reasons why skaters felt like they had to stay silent. There were travel bans on people with HIV AIDS from entering the U.S. Bans that would make it impossible for a skater to tour and earn a living. (sighs) It really sounds like there was just so much fear. There was. But at the end of this era, there were also glimmers of hope. U.S. figure skating started educating skaters about safe sex, and the biggest skaters in the world were participating in HIV-AIDS benefit shows. By the mid-90s, the stigma around AIDS, the fear of it being associated with the skating world, that started to fall away. And I think that's an important transition to point out, because it shows that the culture could change. The changing of a culture, sometimes it doesn't happen top-down. Sometimes you need some rabble-rousers on the edges, people making change instead of waiting for it to happen. I think we're all united in the hope that one day this glorious flag will fly over a country that treats all its citizens the same. In the early 90s, something remarkable happened in the greater sporting world outside of the official competitions. All those times growing up, looking around and going, I don't belong, I don't fit. Look at this! We fit! Thousands of queer athletes decided to get together and do something different. They were going to have their own damn Olympics. The gay games. Gay games. The gay Olympics. That's what it really is, the gay Olympics. This is the 1994 Gay Games, an Olympics for queer athletes. And the 1994 Gay Games in New York City are remarkable for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the staggering scope of the event. With almost 11,000 athletes from 44 countries participating in 31 different events, the Gay Games are the world's largest competitive athletic competition. The Gay Games, it puts the spotlight on the existence of gay athletes. And there's figure skating at the Gay Games. Not from people at the Olympic level, but there were even some retired elite skaters there. And it shows not just that we're here and we're queer, but that we're not going anywhere. The 1990s, it feels like the start of a new chapter, like the start of something big. The stage was set for queer skaters to break through. Next time on Blind Landing, one skater who made himself undeniable, who was going to be himself on the public stage, whether you liked it or not. And I'm like, okay, you know, I could start out with a, a Navy costume and then strip down to like YMCA. That's next time on part two of Out on the Ice, a story from Blind Landing. Blind Landing is a completely independent podcast made by a very small group of public radio reporters in our free time on our own dime. 
We all have full-time jobs and work on the podcast on nights and weekends. So I know every podcast asks for these things, but if you want to support this podcast and support independent journalism, there are three really simple ways you can do that. First, by sharing a link to the show on social media and writing a few nice words. Second, by leaving us a five-star rating or writing a review on whatever app you're listening to this on. Or third, by dropping us a few bucks in our virtual tip jar at linktree.com slash blindlanding. We've linked to it on our website and on our Twitter and Instagram too. Thanks for listening.